Father, I just pray that you would overwhelm us with your word even here tonight, that Father, you would become bigger in our life than anything, than anything that brings us joy apart from you, than anything, Lord, that maybe gets us down. And I just pray, Father, that as we look at the sections of Scripture that you have blessed us with, may we see, Lord, that your hand is on every aspect of our lives and draw confidence and a hope in that. And so, Father, again, as we open up your word, we just pray that we would become closer to you. I pray, Father, that you would just do a great work within our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just turn and greet your neighbor. Greetings. Arlene. Hello, hi. Why is everybody sitting in the back tonight? Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, it's, been, uh, it's good to see everybody come back on a Sunday night. We took a couple of weeks off. We uh, had our last study in Ecclesiastes on December 11th. We had our outreach on the 18th, and we saw the movie uh, Nativity on that evening. Then we had Christmas. We took both Christmas and New Year's off, so it's good to see people come back and get back at it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, just looking at verse 1, we've already studied verses 1 through 9, and then we'll just move on from there. But the preacher says in chapter 3 verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time for purpose under heaven. And so what he's speaking of is, is that God's hands is upon the events of life. Well, the preacher... He's looking at things under the sun, as we've seen so many times, are apart from the relationship with God, we see it as under the S-O-N, apart from relationship with Jesus Christ, looking at the world the way the world looks at the world, the way the philosopher looks at the world. And what we've seen so far is the problem stated, the problem, the hopeless situation that life is apart from God. It simply makes no sense. And so the preacher in his wisdom, he's made some startling observations, things that we can so easily ignore, things that, well, as we go through life and we get in the busyness of life, we don't address, but things that we even see from a negative standpoint as the preacher is looking at them always lead us back to the throne of God. It either leads you to the throne of God or it leads you into despair. And so some of the observations that he's made looking at things and in his life, nothing ever really changes, nothing's ever really new, and how do we really understand everything? And then, especially, now Solomon is never addressed, although it seems pretty obvious that Solomon is the author here, he comes to the most startling observation. Now, the startling, most startling observation would be any of us, that which any of us make, when we understand either the gifting or the ability that we have and how futile it is. Because again, the worst thing, and I'll tell you what I mean in a minute, but the worst thing that you can convince a person is there's no hope or they're of absolutely no use. Well, Solomon, he's the wisest man who's ever existed. But then he comes to this, you know, wisdom would be an amazing gift, wisdom from God for sure. But then he comes to the startling observation at the end of chapter 1, and it has to do with that which he depends so heavily upon. 
in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, I communed with my heart. I, I, I got honest with myself saying, look, I've obtained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And again, you would think that this would be a very good thing. And he says, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I even stretched and went to learn and sought things out. He, see, he comes to the conclusion, though, I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. He's saying, by itself, wisdom by itself, there's no substance to it. Matter of fact, it's even worse, because he says, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So again, trying to figure everything out, trying to have an understanding of everything apart from God, instead of building him up, it's driving him down. And so we look at our kids and the necessity to train up our children in the way that they should go. And I have a responsibility. I've done that with my children. I have a responsibility with my grandchildren. Because just bringing them to a secular school apart from God, well, you're bringing them to the same conclusion that the preacher arrived at. None of this makes any sense. And matter of fact, the more wisdom or the more understanding I get, I get more into the details and I see how futile life is. So again, keep it in mind. This is apart from God. And so this caused him to go back and to re-examine his own life. And so we've got Solomon and we have all of these excesses. Now these excesses are that which it seems like most of the world and maybe even some of us have been striving for. And so he examines his own life and accomplishments and then he presents four arguments that seem to come to the conclusion that life isn't really worth living at all because I've obtained these things and there was absolutely no satisfaction in them. He looked at the monotony of life, again, that it just keeps going and going. He looked at the vanity of wisdom, as we've just seen, the futility of wealth. He had all the money that anybody could ever desire, and it brought him no happiness. And again, we see this in our society. You see it in the athlete. You see it in the actor. They accumulated everything that they wanted, wealth, notoriety, and instead of being a blessing, it's become a curse to them, moving into a gated community, paparazzi, hiding from people, worried that people are going to take their wealth. And that which they strove so hard to get has really come back on them. And then he looks at the end of chapter 1, that great equalizer, death. And he comes to probably the worst conclusion at all. The rich man, the wise man, he dies the same as the fool. At the end, is all you got is a dead body. It, it may be decorated a little bit nicer, but nonetheless... The rich man, he dies the same as the fool. Now, keep this in mind. Now, in our day, we don't do a whole lot of thinking. We don't muse, we amuse. We'll sit in front of video games or we'll watch TV, go to the movies, and we have all of our thinking, if you will, done for us, or at least the ability to, to turn our brain off. Well, back then, they would muse, or, or they would think on things. It was, it was a common thing to do. You didn't have anything to do at night. Abraham Lincoln, he taught himself. He was self-taught. He had those nights, and he would sit in front of a, 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 a lantern, and he would read, and he would study. And I would imagine the preacher, after he's accomplished all of these things, he's starting to think about these things, and he's starting to put things in perspective to get a true understanding. He takes God out of the equation, trying to make sense of it all. Because if you recall, back in, in Kings, his wives took his heart away. 
So he's understanding both sides of the coin here, apart from a relationship with God and in a relationship with God. And again, with any human philosophy, it's always led to the same cliff, death. And how do you, describe, or how do you figure death into the equation? So apart from the Son, apart from God, and the knowledge of God. Although we see at the end of chapter 2, and he does this from time to time, and we'll look at it a little bit tonight, he does bring God back into the equation. It's almost as if he comes to the edge of despair, and then God is there to rescue him before he falls over the edge. And probably God did the same thing to you at the point of your salvation. A lot of times the Lord will allow us to come to the end of ourselves and then he reveals himself to us, and then we come into that place of understanding. But if we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 24, he says, Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat, <clears throat> who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before him. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And so now the preacher <clears throat> is going to present each of his four arguments in detail. Again, as he looked at the monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, futility of wealth, and that great equalizer death. Matter of fact, the end of chapter 12 is probably one of the best chapters as far as aging and all that it means. And so he's going to be looking at these things in more and more detail. In chapter 3, as we've entered into it, through to chapter 5, verse 9, he is examining the monotony of life. The monotony of life, it's the argument that was presented earlier in chapter 1. If you look at verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And so again, man has set himself about doing this great work, but in actuality, the core of humanity, does it really change? And again, we look at the landscape of our society today. I mean, how is racial equality still not where it should be? Why are there still all of these, 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 these arguments and this conflict going on? Social, economic, why are all of these... Haven't we gotten past that? Well, if you look at the Bible, man will never get past those things apart from God. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we see that we are all one in Christ. Matter of fact, we see that in Acts chapter 2. You had people from all different nations that were in that room and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's a unity in the Holy Spirit. We experience this as we are in the body of Christ here at church and we see it in Revelation chapter 5, that great heavenly choir of all the nations as it comes together. But again, the preacher is looking at these things apart from God, trying to make, trying to gain understanding. So, when examining the monotony of life, we as believers need to look at it remembering that we know, or what we know, is what the Bible tells us that we know. And so we, we took this verse from the, the New Testament last time we met, 
as we went through verses 2 through 9 as far as the time to be born, a time to die, and so on and so forth. And in the midst of all of these things and all of the seasons of life and the things that go on in our lives, there's one thing that we have to remember because we're told that we know this. Now, when the Bible says, and we know, the idea is is that you need to get on board with that. You need to grasp. This is something that I am to hold on to. When, When God tells you, and you know this, This is to be an anchor within your life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things work together. All the the, the events of your life, all of creation is working together for the good. We we heard it again because we hear it every week. Somebody at an airport went and shot a bunch of people. Even this morning, woke up in Israel, somebody drove a truck into a a group of, I believe it was soldiers, something like that, and people were killed. And you think, what in the world is going on? Well, if you don't know that all things are working together for the good, if you're trying to to create heaven here on earth, you're like the kid's trying to put his his fingers in the holes of the dam, and, and there's just no way. There's no way you can stop the flood. And so, God... In order for us to make sense of things that are going on, this is what we know. And so as we're looking at the monotony of life, we see these things and how cyclical they can be. We need to know and understand these things are working together for the good. And so what I must understand is these things that I know, they're working together for the good. So as I plug, as a Christian, as I plug into the flow of these things, the ebb and flow of these things, I'm part of God's plan for good. I'm part of God's plan for good at at my job. I'm part of God's plans for good at my school. Wherever it might be, that I can be part of what God is working for his good. Because God just doesn't throw a good blanket over humanity. What does he do? He uses people. He uses his people to achieve his purposes. His people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we can look at our country and say, this is bad. And generally, the world situation It's bad, but God is doing a good work in the midst of that bad, and I can be part of the solution. Maybe part of the solution isn't a good term. I can be part of the conclusion, the conclusion, the end of all that God is doing, to play a key part. Now, is that conclusion tomorrow? Is it next year? Is it 100 years from now? I don't know when Christ is coming back, but I can be part of God's plan and how he works things for the good, because... Although I want Jesus Christ to come back, I need to be of the mindset that he's going to tarry. And I've got kids, and I've got grandkids, and I want to have impact in this world so that they can have impact in this world, that we can still see revival break out. Not of the mindset that I can turn in times and the evilness of that, but still, you never know what God is doing. And there's always that opportunity to see good. See, when you see the word good in the Bible... 99% of the time, think godly. All things work together for the godly. I'm not talking individual, but according to God's plan. So the good, the good is that which God desires to come to pass. And so apart from this knowledge, life can be depressing. The truth of the matter is if God does not preside over the affairs of man, if he's not sovereign over the lives of men and women, then there's no need to bother with a right walk, personal devotion, and all religion is vain. Why bother? 
Que sera, sera, whatever is to be, will be, the future is not ours to see. That philosopher Doris Day sang sometime back in the 60s or 50s or whenever that was. But see, that's not, it's not que sera, sera, whatever will be. It's the desire of the will of God. And for us to plug in to what God's will is in our personal life and then in our corporate life. This is a church. Calvary Chapel, Ontario is a church. It's a gathering together of God's people. God has a will. The number one will for this church is for the word of God to be preached. Secondly, his will is, is that we would have influence in one another's lives, the people's lives outside of these doors, and in this city. I guarantee you, that's the will of God. Get this morning's teaching. We talked about it in depth. Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. So, God does this great work, working together for his good. And so that being the case, then everything is under the control of God. It's in that light, verse 2, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. God is in the midst of those times and in those days and doing his work, and we have to understand that we are part of these times, the times and the seasons of the Lord. So, if everything is under the control of the will of God, and it's the first thing that he addresses, then we have to consider a few things. If everything's under the control and the will of God, why get up every day and go to work? If, again, you know, look at verse 2, what I just read through verse 8, if there's just these times, really, what part do we have in it? And God's will is going to come to pass regardless, and... Am I really able to change anything? Am I really ever able to make a difference? Now, I'll answer that question before I really get into the details. Have you ever made a difference in anybody's life? Have you ever made a difference in anybody's life? I've been used to make a difference. In, and I'm not even talking about pastor. I've been used to make a difference in my wife's life, my children, my grandchildren, but also people who I don't know. I was thinking about one situation I'd completely forgotten about. I was able, this particular person in this one situation, in this one day, totally unexpected, I was able to lead this person to the Lord, made a difference in that person's life. And so we have that potential. Yeah, God's will and God's got his hands upon all these things, and all these things are working together for the good, but I've got to be of the mindset of Isaiah. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me for that purpose, Lord. I want to see change come to our community and the only way change is going to come to the community if God's people stand up and present themselves for the purpose of the will of God. And so I want to be part of that. I want to be used by the Lord. Because again, you look at the things that the world has made a priority. We just celebrated Christmas. Now apart from God, what difference is it going to make? World War I, I don't think I talked about it this year, but World War I... On the front lines, there was Germany, and I don't remember if it was the Americans or the French, but nonetheless, they were trench warfare, and they were kind of at a stalemate. And they, it was Christmas time, so they suspended the attacks, and the guys on the Allies side heard the Germans singing Christmas carols. 
they started singing Christmas carols, and sooner or later they got out of their trenches, they laid their arms down, they started fraternizing with one another, they played a soccer game out there in no man's land, and they had this, what we would call, fellowship, and then Christmas was over. They went back into their trenches and started killing one another again. And again, we have the peace on earth and goodwill towards man, taking God out of the equation, and it seems like we can be civil for that one day or that season, but then everything just goes back. What difference is it going to make who wins the Super Bowl? Dolphins aren't, but what difference does it make who's (laughs) going? Jim's a Dolphin fan. (laughs) They lost today. The, The Chicago Clubs have not even been in the World Series. What is it, for 100 years? Is that what it was? For 100 years, and they won the World Series. Has that changed anybody's life? I don't think it's changed. Well, I know it hasn't even changed anybody's life in the Chicago. And I even know on the team, and I don't know anybody on the team, but I know right now it's like, okay, well, that's done. What are we going to do next year? And again, we have this flow and never able to win or gain any kind of satisfaction. Presidential election? Okay, Trump is going to be sworn in, what, about a week and a half or so, two weeks? But what change is he really able to bring about? Well, we know apart from God... Really nothing. And then you have to consider what difference is 2017 going to be from 2016 and 2018 is going to be here before we know it. This being the case, apart from God, Isaiah says in Isaiah 22:13, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we'll die. Let's enjoy everything that we can out of this life. Grab for all the gusto we're able to. And what's he speaking of in the context here? God had called them to repent. God had called them to get right with them. But what are they fostering? They're trying to foster some sort of joy or some kind of contentment in their life. And so entering into verse 10, and actually verses 10 and 11, we see our work. I have seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. And so I see this section of Scripture, and different commentators see it in different ways, but I see him as bringing God back into the equation. Number one, he mentions God in verse 10. The God-given task which we are to set ourselves to do. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can look at it, but the way I see it, it's basically all the same. What's your God-given task? Well, we, we call our occupation our calling. Well, if somebody who is an unbeliever says that it's my calling to be whatever, a doctor, well, who called you to be a doctor? I mean, again, we use these terms, but you always have to bring it back to the source. Well, we understand this. Now, I can look back at my life. Somebody was asking me, if you had to do it all over again, and I hate thinking like that or talking like that, but if you had to do it all over again, what would you have done? And I start thinking, well, you know, if I had to do it all over again, probably wouldn't get into construction, wouldn't start electrical, probably stayed in college, because I did go to college for about three years, and finished my college, probably get into business, and then I'm thinking business would be good because I make a lot of money, and then, you know, this is what everybody says, and, uh, and you know, it would have benefits here at the church, and, but then I start thinking, but that's not the avenue for me to come to the pastor, to come to be a pastor. 
the avenue for me to come to be a pastor is exactly what has occurred in my life. And there was no doubt about it when I started doing electrical, thought I was going to do it for all of my life, but there's no doubt about it to me that that was a calling from God. Even in an unsafe state with the knowledge of God, not knowing God, I realized that that was a calling from God. And so I possessed it and I became it. I became an electrician because we call ourselves the things that we are. I'm an electrician, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, whatever it might be. And so we understand that this is a God-given task. He's given me certain abilities, certain talents, and, and certain, well, just plain desires or passions for these things. It's the same thing within the body of Christ. He's given us gifts. He's given us gifts that differ from one another so that we can be a fully functioning body. And so your gift is designed to grow the body of Christ and to lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see how God has done this work within the hearts of his people. Again, it says, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Well, the problem with that is we can become over-occupied and all of a sudden the tax becomes becomes bigger than what the target or what the result is to be from that task. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, it says, Now he who received the seed, this would be the word of God, amongst thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We can so get involved and immersed in the task that we lose the vision that God has for us and how he desires to use us. Now, we can do so in the workplace, we call it a workaholic or whatever, that the sole focus and, and efforts get put into that job and we forget about what the Lord has and can understand that, but even look at it within the church and the exercising of spiritual gifting. We can allow the exercising of our spiritual gifts to consume us to such a degree that no longer are we doing the work of ministry, although we're going through the motions, but the problem is we're doing it all, but nobody's really being ministered to. And if nobody's really being ministered to, in actuality, we're really just simply wasting our time. And so we've got to consider the things that I do. I've got to consider, Lord, well, taking God out of it, I can come up here and speak for 45 minutes. I've become quite sufficient at that, and rarely do I speak for 45 minutes. I think I speak, what, a half hour? Maybe an hour, something like that. And I can go up here and throw words at you for an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it might be. But what value are those words going to be? Am I seeking out the Lord? Am I asking Him to fill me with the Spirit? Am I understanding when God's Word is open that, that, that God's going to do some, some amazing work? Am I making sure I'm not getting in the way of what God wants to say and what God wants to do. Things that need to be considered. It needs to be bathed in prayer. You must know the will of God and the direction that God is desiring to lead the church. And again, we can become so busy and, and so full of ourselves that we lose the Lord. And once we've lost the Lord, we've really lost it all. And Haggai, this is pretty much what has happened. They're supposed to be building the temple, but they're building their own homes. They're living in paneled houses. Verse 3 of chapter 1 in Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? See, they're, 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 they're busy, but they're busy about things of the world and things of the flesh. 
and they've left the things of the Lord to basically rot. Verse 5, Now therefore consider, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look at your life. Look at all of the effort that you're putting into what you put into. What benefit are you really having from that? What lasting value is there? He says in verse 6, You've sown much. He's saying, sown, you've thrown out a lot of seeds, but you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And we should all be pretty much able to relate to this. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put him into a bag with holes. Never see, you know, making all this money, where's it all going? Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. He repeats himself, consider your way. Make an evaluation of your life. That's exactly what the preacher is doing back in Ecclesiastes. He's making an evaluation of his life and the situations and circumstances of that life. It says in verse 8, Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure and it be glorified, said the Lord, says the Lord. Make me once again your priority, God is saying, and I will make you and your blessings here on this earth a priority as well. And so, as we consider these things, we need to understand that the good things in this life come from the hands of the Lord and not the efforts of man. Matter of fact, coming through to Jesus' day, it was the efforts of man that have drawn people away from God. And Christ came so that we would know him and that we would submit ourselves to him. Doesn't mean that we don't work hard. Even ministry is called the work of ministry. To work hard, and we'll see that in Ecclesiastes as well, is a good thing. But I've got to have the proper perspective. I've got to have the Lord goes, that would go before me, and I need to be of the understanding of what God wants to accomplish through my humble efforts. I have seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And so we may consider our calling, we may consider our job some substandard thing and kind of fall into the same funk as Solomon is doing here, but as far as how God has gifted you, as far as how he has enabled you both in your occupation, both in your ministry, it's beautiful in the sight of the Lord. If it's his will, it's a beautiful thing. He's also made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. We're not working for the time and for our benefit now. We're working for eternal ramifications. Again, the things that I do, both in my occupation and both in my ministry, they are to have eternal ramifications in my life and in the lives of others. In my life, as I go to heaven and God gives me my spiritual rewards. In somebody else's life, as I go to heaven and I see them there, and that I had an opportunity in that life, either to sow seeds, plant seeds, or to water seeds, or to harvest seeds, whatever it might be, that's up to God. But as long as I'm doing that work, he's put eternity in our hearts that I would see the eternal ramifications in everything that I do. He also has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. He doesn't fill me in with the details. You're you're never going to get all of the information. You know what this is called? This is called walking by faith. Walking by faith, just in what God's word says to do. I know that God has created me with the abilities that he has given me. I know that I'm to be humble in those things, but I am to exercise those things. I don't always understand what God's doing. I don't always know the plan of God. 
But to the best of my ability, I need, we need to continue to push forward and to move in his will and in his ways. Verses 12 through 13 speak of the gifts of God, or the gift from God, not God's giftings, but just how God has, well, maybe blessing would be a better term. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So as you're, as you're ministering or as you're working, the, the money that you make and the things that you're able to buy, I mean, you honor God, but have you learned to enjoy the things and the stuff that God has given you? Again, we can become slaves to the things that we own. I, my truck. My truck's in the shop. It, it needs a little $5 hose thing. And the guy can't find the $5 hose. And it's getting to be an irritant. I mean, he was supposed to just bring it in for an hour. He's had it since Friday, and I'm not going to get it till tomorrow. He says, may not be till Tuesday. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? We've got to learn to enjoy the moments and the times that God has given us. We need to enjoy. The, you know, I look at back at, at my children, and I remember when my kids were born, it's like, can't wait till they turn 18 and move out of the house. And it's taking forever, and it never seemed like they were going to grow up and go away. They turned 18, and they still didn't go away. I can't wait to... What, but then you look back, and man, that went so fast. I wish I would have learned to enjoy the times and the seasons even so much more. Last December, I turned 59. I wish I would have learned to value the years even so much more. And so you see these things, and, well, these years, they were gifts from God because they come from no other source. The children that I have, you know, I love my children, all, don't get me wrong on that, but, again, they're gifts from God. And the grandchildren, they're gifts from God. Isaiah 65 speaks of the blessings in the millennial age. It says that they should build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be descendants of the blessed Uh, of the blessing of the Lord and their offspring with them. And so again, I have to understand that these good things that have been given to me, I'm to enjoy in the Lord and give Him thanks. I'm not to look at it and say, well, yeah, this is my house, but look at that guy's house. That's my car, but look at that guy's car. Look how God has blessed you and enjoy what God has given you. Again, you look at yourselves Everybody here, you got clothes on your back. Everybody here drove here in a car. And you're going to go home and you're going to have a warm bed. God has blessed you. Learn to be a person who counts their blessings. It can be hard because, again, we can lose focus so easily, but learn to enjoy the things that God has given you. Verses 14 through 15, we see his will. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. In which, um, excuse me, that which has already been and that which has already been. Let me try this again. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. 
And so in the midst of all these things and in the occurrences of life that ebb and flow, what's the will of God? How do we even find the will of God? Well, there's a great pattern. I'm not going to go there. We've looked at it many times before, and I'm sure we'll look at it in detail again. But in Acts chapter 13, in the first six verses, we saw the will of God in the Apostle Paul's, or how the Apostle Paul found the will of God. First of all, we see the Apostle Paul, he's part of a local church. He's involved in the fabric of a church. We see a group of men there. He's having fellowship with godly believers. We see that he's actually doing the work of ministry. He's involved. And we see he's exercising his spiritual gifting. And then we see that they're praying and they're fasting. And in the midst of all that, and it's like he's just going to church, he's doing what God has told him to do, and he's involved in all of this. And then it says, the Holy Spirit said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. At some point, God spoke. And you know what? I, that section, the reason I've mentioned it before, because it's very special to me, because it's how God's moved in my life. I, I didn't campaign to become a pastor or a staff minister. I was just doing what I felt God called me to do. My wife and I, we were on the same page. We were raising up four young kids, and we got involved in the work of ministry, and my portion of the ministry was at church. Her portion of ministry was to keep track of our kids during that time, and she made phone calls and stuff like that. God called us to a place of leadership in ministry, and as all I did is what I believed the Lord called me to do. And then one day, the administrator came to me and says, Pastor would like for you to come on staff as the staff minister. And that was just beyond me. It's like, do they really know who I am? And then I went and told my wife, and she said, do they really know who you are? Apparently, we did a good job of fooling them. But then, okay, this is what God has called me to be. I'm to be a support to the pastor. And so for three years, I just gave myself over to being a support to the pastor, and then God called me to this work of ministry. So it's as you're involved in that work. Now, are you all going to become staff ministers? You're going to be pastors? No, because that's not necessarily your calling. But just be involved in it, and God will minister to you, and God will direct you to where it is, that you, where, wherever it is that his will is. And so the will of God, what is the biblical pattern of a will of God? Well, there's certain things, once again, that we know. First, there's the call to all of mankind throughout the ages to do God's will. We see it in this book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. What's the will of God for mankind? Well, the preacher says, let us hear the conclusion on the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Why? For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the will of God in our life is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Now, fear, whenever you see the word fear in the Bible, such as fear God, this is to be obedient to God. It's to have a respect for God that you act in kind or you act in obedience. And a lot of time, fear has an action attached to it. If I have a fear of the Lord, I'm going to honor him. If I have a fear of the Lord, I'm going to worship him. If I have a fear of the Lord, I'm going to walk in his ways. Secondly, there is the call to the Christian. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Somebody was just telling me about this verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, it's your reasonable service. It's the will of God. He goes on to say, do not be conformed to the world, but transform. How? Through the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and perfect will of God. And so that would be my personal call. And then thirdly, when it comes to God's will in your life, 
There, there's another call that is going to be specific to the ministry that God has for you. Just like, just like what we see with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Let me get there. He had a specific call for this prophet. Now, this was important that Jeremiah call, uh, understood this because Jeremiah had the least successful ministry on the surface than anybody else. Now, he made the Bible, so it had to be pretty successful, but he never saw converts. He never saw change. And I can imagine, well, we do know, if you read through Jeremiah, there's times when he said, I quit, I give up. But the thing he could always refer back to was, this is the will of God. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, or I separated you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And so he ordained Jeremiah for that call. So Jeremiah, there was no doubt, and it was also something that Jeremiah could refer back to when things got hard and times got difficult. Partly like Paul in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You want to have the ministry of the Apostle Paul? Well, it was one of preaching the word, but also it was one of suffering. The two usually go hand in hand. And then even Samuel, God met him in a very personal way as he called him, and as he called him into this great work of ministry. And so God, God is a very personal God as he calls us and he uses us. He's glorified through us. And then entering into the midst of all of this, We've got this problem of evil, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun. So once again, he's kind of moving from the knowledge of the Lord to looking at things apart from God. He says, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I'm seeing these great injustices that go on. I'm seeing it here and, well... The preacher saw it. He was the king, so he's probably seeing it from his governors and mayors and these various low-level leaders. He's saying now these people have a heart to, to benefit themselves and to take advantage of the people. And so he's seeing in the midst of God's plan and all of these things that are going on, as we know things are working together for the good, but there's also this problem of evil in the midst of it. Once again, the only thing that would make sense for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see how God does prevail. Verse 17, I said in my heart, now again he's looking above the sun, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. And so the psalmist looked at this. He saw the, the wicked and he saw how the wicked prevail. And it was kind of befuddling to him. But then he came to the knowledge of their end. And he understood then, this is all they got. This is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. But this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. And he understood the reality of these things. And yeah, the wicked, the wicked are going to seem to prevail for a period of time. Think of the time during the tribulation. 
it's going to look like the devil's achieved a great victory during that time, but that's only going to be a seven-year kingdom, and the majority of it, it's going to be falling apart. Verse 18, I said in my heart, I said to myself, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Now, like in my Bible, in verse 18, it's in italics, and so they added that. It's to see that they themselves are animals. And the idea, again, apart from God, they see that they're no better than the critters. For what happens to the sons of men, now if you're honest and you look at things apart from God, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. We enslave one another, we use one another, and then sooner or later, just like the animals, we die. One thing befalls them, and one dies, and so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. So apart from God, everybody's headed for that day of the grave. Interesting thing here, reincarnation. This verse speaks against it. Man has one breath. It's appointed for man to live once, but we know that because it's appointed for man to die once. It's appointed for man to die once, and then judgment. Nobody gets a second chance. This is all we get. This is all we got. And that being the case, yeah, as we look and we see the futility of these things, as we see how these things continue on and it doesn't seem like they make rhyme nor reason, it's because we look at these things, and even your life, if you so do that, if you're looking at it apart from God, I guarantee you, it's not going to make sense. It's not going to make sense at all. But if you bring God into the equation, you're able to see just in your reflection in the mirror the work that God is doing. You're able to understand the love of the Lord. You see the place of evil, and there is a place of evil, but you see how God is able to overcome that. And you see that truly we have been created to give God the glory so that others would come and they would partake of a relationship with Christ as well. Verse 20, I'll read to the end. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit, the personalities of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of animals, which goes down to the earth? So he's speaking of man as he goes, ascends to heaven, as he dies. Now he's also talking about the unbeliever, because we know the unbeliever will stand before the white throne, great white throne of God. Animals will not be judged. He says, so I perceive that nothing is better then a man should rejoice in his own work, in your own business, in what God has given you to do. Learn to find joy in that. Again, we live in times that people have influence in all of that, but understand, all those things and what God has set me to do are working together for the good. That man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage or his gift, for who can bring, to him, bring him to see what will happen after him? things that I have no control of, don't get caught up in that because it's just going to frustrate you. Just understand, God's given you this moment in the Word. God's given you the moments that you have in your loved ones. Tomorrow morning, the majority of us, He's given you that moment to go to work. Learn to understand the details of your life and how God interacts in the details of the life. When you start losing perspective, when you start becoming depressed, or you start becoming forlorn, realize you're starting to look apart from Jesus Christ. You're starting to look at things under the sun. Look at things above the sun, underneath the glory of God, as God, well, the shadow of God's wings, as God spreads his wings over his people. 
He keeps his people. We go into hard situations and circumstances for the purpose of refinement. But all in all, God loves us and God is doing a work. Keep your eyes upon the Lord. It's then that you're going to find meaning in life and you're going to find purpose for the giftings and abilities that God has given you. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us this time. And as you have spoken to us through your word, I pray, Father, that you would make it personal to those who are here, that, Father, we would see your reasons and purposes. And so, Lord, I pray that especially good message for the beginning of a week, that, Lord, we would understand that truly you have gone before us, and, Lord, we will be entering in to all that you have prepared for us. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you. I lift up those who have come out tonight, that you would bless them and that you would use them in this coming week. Father, show us and and cause us to recognize the hope that we have in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?